And would you bow with me, please, in a word of prayer. Holy and righteous Father, you have given us your word to glorify your name, to exalt your Son, to save sinners like us, to build us up in the most holy faith. And we pray that those purposes for which you gave your word, both the written word and the living word, our Lord Jesus, will be realized anew, afresh, this morning in all of our hearts. We ask it humbly, but as your word teaches us, confidently, in Jesus' name, amen. Right now, what are the two things uppermost in your mind? In other words, if I get boring, to what will your mind wander? (laughs) In the final analysis, the two things that are really uppermost in every one of our minds this morning are living and dying. This morning, I want to talk to you about living. And to do so, I will take you to what has been called the storm center of the Reformation, the doctrine of justification by faith. After all, as Martin Luther, the great preacher of the Reformation, said, it is the chief article of faith on which the church stands or falls and on which its entire doctrine depends. But let me ask you, biblically understood, what is justification? Well, if you take that question to the shorter catechism of our Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our doctrinal statement or standard, you will find the biblical answer. Justification is the act of God, of God's free grace by which he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. He does so only because he counts the righteousness of Christ as ours. Justification is received by faith alone. Close quote. This is why we refer to justification as a forensic or alien justification. Justification and righteousness. A legal righteousness which is outside ourselves. The sinner is not made righteous or virtuous, but declared righteous based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. In short, as has been proclaimed from this pulpit on countless occasions, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Faith is not meritorious. It is the instrumental cause the means by which we receive Christ and all his benefits. But all too often, I'm afraid that we who are Christians live life as though justification by faith had nothing to do with it. On too many occasions, we seem to leave this monumental truth on the doctrinal shelf and strike out to live the Christian life without taking into consideration this exceedingly great and comforting truth. And so, I have come this morning to remind you and me 
and perhaps for some of you, to hear for the first time the fruits of justification. For there are precious and practical truths which flow from this marvelous doctrine, elements that are essential to the ongoing of our Christian lives for the glory of God. Now, I mentioned earlier that this passage begins with the word therefore, and some of you are tired of hearing that when you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. And as hokey and corny as that statement sounds, it's one you will probably not forget. Another way of saying therefore is this. Paul is saying in light of the fact that I've told you that, I now want to tell you this. And what is the that? Well, he has told us in the previous chapters that justification by faith is necessary and real. And he has told us in chapter 4 that justification by faith is scriptural. He's saying that Abraham was not justified by works. He was justified by faith. And so the first fruit of justification in this passage You will notice in verse 1, look at it again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If you know the Lord Jesus, you have been justified by faith, declared righteous based on his perfect righteousness, and you have peace with God. Paul states that very fact, as you noted. The basic meaning of peace is reconciliation with God through the death of his son. But look again at the beginning of verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, in the Greek New Testament, Paul puts this in a particular tense that we call the snapshot tense. It's like a snapshot that you take with a camera and have developed. It's a completed fact. It's pointing to a moment in time. It's a fact. It's an an accomplished action. But this particular verb happens to be a passive voice verb, which sounds rather stuffy until you understand that it's telling us that the subject is not doing the acting. The subject is being acted upon by an outside agent. And in this context, it is God the Father. And I like the New American Standard Bible translation, which says, Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. John Calvin, the great theologian of the Reformation, said, and this is one of my favorite Calvin quotes, On the cross, as in a magnificent chariot, he triumphed over his enemies and ours. Close quote. The war is over, and it's over forever. Once we were his enemies. Now we are through Christ, his friends. We have peace with God. Now please understand that Paul is not saying here, not talking about a subjective feeling, what we sometimes call peace of mind, but an objective status a new relationship with God. One Bible teacher said, and please don't miss this. This is classic. Justification takes place in the mind of God and not in the nervous system of the believer. 
time and time again, as one of your pastors, I counseled people who got this all confused, how they felt at a given moment with their objective status because of Jesus Christ and having been justified by faith in him. I remember many years ago, a young man came to see me for counseling, and he told me of the sin that he had committed, and he was so ashamed. He said, Butch, it's so bad that I don't think I'll even try to talk to God for at least two weeks. So I looked at him and said, tell me, what do you plan to do in the next two weeks that will make you any more acceptable to God than you are right now in Jesus Christ? He knew the answer to that question. It was nothing. I counseled him to repent of his sin, to confess it to God, and to move on out in continuing to follow Christ and not waste the next two weeks trying to womp up some kind of feeling that would make him feel worthy to talk to his heavenly Father. And you and I must live our Christian lives based on that objective status, our position with the Lord. That's why this passage is so important. As someone has so aptly stated, when we lack the peace of God, we should turn to our peace with God. But look at the text again and pay particular attention as to how this justification came. By faith, not works. By faith, and notice again, through, that is, by means of, our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that is what Paul has been telling us in chapters 3 and 4. So he begins what we call chapter 5 with the word, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was August 1945. The Japanese had finally surrendered although the formal surrender papers would not be signed until September the 2nd. It was August. It seemed as though everyone in my hometown of Charleston, West Virginia, went to Center City. You could hardly move. The moment you turned, you bumped into somebody, and everybody was exclaiming, It's over. It's over. It's over. There was peace. But as you know, that peace was short-lived. But within six six years, we had the so-called Korean conflict, the war in Vietnam, the Gulf War, 9-11, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. But the peace of God is not like that, which is why Paul writes later in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. A truly justified person 
One who has been declared righteous based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is uncondemned and uncondemnable. Peace is not something that is deserved or earned or merited. It is a fruit of justification. Do you understand that? Is your faith and reliance and trust in Christ and Christ alone? He's the only way sinners like me and you can have peace with God. Are you ready for the second fruit of justification? You'll find it in the beginning of verse 2. Not only that you have peace with God, but you have access to God. You have access to God. Note the continuity of the passage. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You see, Paul is still pointing us to Christ. And two elements immediately grab our attention. The first is the verb, the word of actions. We have obtained. It happens to be in the perfect tense in the Greek New Testament. A past completed action with a present result and an abiding remaining circumstance or situation. What it's telling us is this. It's emphasizing the completed state to have received, to have obtained, and still possess. And the second element that grabs our attention here is that word access. We have obtained access. It's the regular word for introducing or ushering someone into the presence of royalty. Dr. Leon Morris, a noted biblical scholar, believes the rendering we have here, access, is inadequate, as it leaves out the fact that we do not come in our own strength, but need an introducer That is Christ. The French have a word for this. It is entree. And what Paul is telling us is that Jesus Christ is our introducer to an entree with God the Father. And would you notice again how this entree has been received, obtained? It's by faith, not works. But entree or introduction into what? Well, look at the text again. Into this grace, that is, this state of grace in which we stand. Now, what does it mean to have an entree with God? Prior to the cross, a thick, very thick, heavy curtain separated man from God and God from man. But when Jesus purchased our redemption on the cross by buying us back out of the slave market of sin with his own blood, he cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. More literally, it is paid in full. And Matthew informs us in chapter 27 of his gospel that at that moment, that curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two from top to bottom, and Jesus ushered his own directly into the presence of God the Father. I came to understand this in a new way shortly after my dad died back in 1969. My dad, as some of you may remember, was a sports writer for much of his life. 
He then became a managing editor of the same paper. But the last 10 years of my dad's life, he was press secretary, speechwriter, and administrator assistant, administrative assistant for three governors in my home state of West Virginia. He died at a very young age. He was only 55. His death was the result of a fire in his apartment. All three of those governors were pallbearers at my dad's funeral. And as they, along with three others, placed my dad's body in the funeral hearse, the man who was currently the governor motioned for me to come to him on the curb. And he said, if there is any way I can be of help to you in settling your dad's estate, or in any other way, please feel free to let me know. So some weeks later, I called my dad's secretary, and I made an appointment with the governor. And weeks later, I went to Charleston and went and sat in the Capitol building in a very beautiful and spacious waiting room, the kind that a lot of people would think doesn't exist in West Virginia. (laughs) But I was told that the governor was four hours behind time because there had been a crisis in the state that morning. While I was waiting to see if I was going to get in to see the governor, an older gentleman walked up to the receptionist's desk and he said, I would like to see the governor today. She was very kind to him. She said, sir, you have to have an appointment to see the governor. And besides, he's four hours behind schedule today. And even if you had an appointment, we're not sure that you'd be able to see him. You'll have to call back and make an appointment. It wasn't long after that that far across that spacious waiting room, a door opened out of that far wall. And a state trooper came out and called my name. I followed him down a hallway. He motioned for me to turn right. And when I did, I found myself in a chair, seated right across from the governor's desk. And I told him how he could help me. And how he could be of assistance to me in that way. And he was. But as I reflected on that, in the years after that, and preached on this text and others similar to it, it reminded me that what I needed that day with the governor was an entree. You see, the governor didn't see me because of who I was. He saw me because of who my dad was. I do not have access to God, nor do you, in your own right. But because Jesus Christ is your introducer, he is the one who gave you that entree to God the Father. Peter puts it like this. For Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now listen to these last five words. To bring you to God. The words to bring you in 1 Peter 3.18 include the same word that Paul uses here in Romans 5, verse 2. That's the grace of God in action. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. But there is here a third fruit of justification. You'll find it in the latter part of verse 2. 
It's simply, simply this. You have blessed assurance regarding the future. You have blessed assurance regarding the future. Look at the words. Latter part of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, did you notice something? The apostle does not say we rejoice in the glory of God. That is a separate biblical truth. And more about that in a moment. But he says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does Paul mean here by the glory of God? Well, he's talking about the final stage of our salvation. Stage one, justification. Being declared righteous based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ which leads in the Christian life to stage two, sanctification, that biblical word that means growing by grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, maturing, what one scholar called the Christianizing of the Christian, being conformed to the likeness of Jesus, which leads to the final stage of our salvation, glorification, the expectation of future bliss, But Paul says, I remind you, we we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now let me ask, is the biblical concept of hope any different from our culture's understanding of hope? Thank God, yes. It's entirely different. One scholar writes, there is a distinctiveness about the Christian hope. Whereas for the Christian speaker, hope may imply doubt. For Paul, it implied certainty, a happy certainty. Reflect for a moment on the way we use the word hope. We use it like this. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Hey, are you going to pass this semester's exams? I hope so. Well, it doesn't sound like there's much hope in that. But the biblical word carries the idea not of doubt, but of expectancy, anticipation. So that when Paul refers to the second coming of Jesus, what does he call it? The blessed hope. We could translate that phrase, the certain anticipation. The blessed expectancy. It's closely akin to our word guarantee. It's a done deal. You can count on it. So when Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, he's telling us we rejoice in the guarantee of the glory of God. In the words of another authority, it is not the prospect of what might happen, but the prospect of what is already guaranteed. And concerning all of this, the apostle says, we rejoice That word means a triumphant, rejoicing confidence. And this exaltation is based on the hope of the glory of God, the guarantee of the glory of God that yet awaits. Now, when we're young, and oh, how do I remember this? When you're young, you are two things. You feel infinite and indestructible. And then along about, let's say, 37, 38, 40, 42, you begin saying to yourself, you know, I am finite. 
Now, you don't admit that to other people, but it's what you say to yourself. I am finite and extremely fragile. Now, make no mistake, there is much in this life that we enjoy, and God intends that we do. But sin has brought heartache and pain into this life, and God's will for his own is that at the resurrection, we will have a new body in a new heaven, on a new earth, face to face with the glory of Jesus Christ in all of his brilliance and majesty and splendor. You see, the Christian's confidence is that the purpose for which God created him will be ultimately realized. What man was before the fall, the believer will again have through Christ. And let me ask you this morning, what about you? Do you meditate on this fruit of justification that you have blessed assurance regarding the future? That Jesus is coming again? And when he does, there will be that resurrection, what the spiritual called that great getting up morning. And listen again, there will be a new body in a new heaven on a new earth basking in the glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory, the guarantee of the glory of God. But notice now the first three words of verse 3. More than that, another translation says, and I like this better, and not only this. It's as though Paul is saying, hey, wait, that's not all. There's more. And we come to the fourth fruit of justification in this passage. You know that life is not meaningless. You know that life is not meaningless. Now, please note what I did not say. I did not say you know that life is not difficult. But you know that life is not meaningless. Through his apostle, God now tells something that flies in the face of our popular culture. Look at verse 3. But we also rejoice in our sufferings. Our sufferings. Now, this is not a wimpy word in the Greek New Testament, one that means simply minor inconveniences. This is a strong word that means real hardships. Hardships that are brought about by outward circumstances. And what Paul calls sufferings, the book of James calls the testing of your faith. But please note a critical distinction. Paul does not say we rejoice because of our sufferings. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. Now how in the world could Paul say such a thing? We also rejoice in our sufferings because of what they produce. One man said, I do not like crises, but I do like the opportunities they provide. Now rivet your attention on the links in Paul's chain in verses 3 through 5. Look at it with me. Suffering produces endurance. 
Endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, does not disappoint us. Why? Well, look at the text. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Oh, fellow believer, listen again. There is meaning to the Christian life. Life is not meaningless. What are the real hardships in your life this morning? Are they relational? Do they have to do with your job or the lack of one? Are they financial? We could make a long list. But I want to say regarding whatever list you might make, whatever list I might make, I want to say this reverently but graphically. God is not playing games with you and me this morning. He's not jerking you around. He's not saying, as sometimes Christians think he might be saying, I love watching you squirm. But he does declare that he's putting you and me through trials so that our character will be a proven character. And within God's word, that means conformity to Christ, being molded into his likeness and image. Life for the Christian is not meaningless. The late Dr. John Stott put it so well, I quote, There is a divine rationale between suffering, behind suffering. First, suffering is the one and only path to glory. It was so for Christ. It is so for Christians. Secondly, if suffering leads to glory in the end, it leads to maturity now. Suffering can be productive if we respond to it positively and not with anger or bitterness. Thirdly, and listen carefully, suffering is the best context in which to become assured of God's love. Of course, many people will immediately assert the contrary, since it is suffering which makes them doubt God's love. But consider Paul's argument. God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And our Father shows, he demonstrates in verse 8, his own love toward us in this. Look at the cross. Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day so that now he can make this powerful promise in Hebrews 13, verse 5. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Many years ago, I found myself at one of the most critical seasons of my life. And during that time, I was listening to a recorded sermon in which the speaker referred to Romans 5, 1 through 5. I said to myself, I need that. And so I set out to memorize Romans 5, 1 through 5. And even though at the time I was over 40, amazingly, I was able to do that. (laughs) For the next many years, I put myself to sleep every night with this passage. 
And I came to learn over time that in these five verses, there are at least 20 major biblical doctrines referred to. And in addition, I came to understand more fully that even in the midst of my trials and heartaches, life is not meaningless. It has a distinct purpose that leads to glory. Look right here. One of the greatest favors you could ever do yourself, whatever your age, is to memorize these five verses and to meditate on them. That means to mutter them back to yourself every day of your life. It's really difficult to stay discouraged when you feed yourself on the truths in this passage and do it daily. We need to memorize scripture as we grow older because living the Christian life is spiritual warfare. Little wonder then that Paul would also write in Ephesians 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. As we fight the good fight of faith, we must rely on what Messiah Jesus, our risen Lord, has done and the fruits of justification. Listen again. If you are a truly justified person, declared righteous based on Christ's perfect righteousness, you have peace with God. You have an entree to God. You have blessed assurance regarding your future. And you know that life is not meaningless. So by his grace and the power, the mighty power of his Holy Spirit, let us leave this place to live like it. I leave you with the words of Robert Murray McShane, who lived only to be 29, and when he died was considered one of the godliest men in all of Scotland. He wrote, There is something inexpressibly pleasing to a justified mind to know that God has all the honor in our salvation, and we have none. To know that God's honor is not violated, but on the contrary, shines more illustrious. To know that God's law is not injured, but magnified and made honorable. To know that we are safe and God has all the glory. Amen and amen. Let us pray. All glory to you, great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would continue to use this word as we leave this place in a few minutes, that we would feed on it, grow by it. And Lord, we pray that some, by understanding its truths for the first time, will embrace the Lord Jesus.
and receive his merit, his righteousness, because of what you will do in that heart. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his great honor. Amen.